In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We finally finished chapter 6, which was a fun chapter. Before we get into chapter 7, does anyone have any questions, any comments? Pretty good? All right. So, chapter 7 is also a very fun chapter, and... Uh, it's really connected with the following couple of chapters as well. Okay, so it's really hard to jump into this as like its own distinct chapter because there is really no clear break from chapter 7, 8, and 9 because kind of revolve around the same settings. Okay, so just keep that in mind as uh, we get into it from the very start. Okay, so let's read... The first ten verses. Okay. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he didn't want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast not openly, but as it were, in secret. All right, so let's look at this in the context of what just happened in the previous chapter. Even though there's like a clear distinction between chapter 7 and chapter 6, you should always look at the connection between all of these passages because there was never really uh, a numerical system like chapters and verses that... um, that differentiated all these different parts in the scriptures. Because in, in the Hebrew or Greek text of all of these uh, manuscripts, there are no verses. There's no chapter breaks in between. Okay, So keep that in mind. These are all just editorial marks. right? So what just happened prior to this section? Okay, We know that right here, Jesus didn't want to walk in Judea, but... In the last chapter, if you remember, in in verse 66, it says that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Okay? So, Craig Keener, one biblical scholar, says, In contrast to Galileans simply unwilling to follow Jesus, many Judeans wanted to kill him. Right? So, it's it's even worse. They go from an opposition to walking with him to now they want to kill him. Right? So this isn't just about Christ avoiding Judea out of fear. Okay? But right here you see that there's a stark contrast. Okay? It highlights the opposition between the, the Galileans and the Judeans. Okay? Uh, the, the Jews and the Gentiles. Okay? And so he does in fact go to Judea a little bit later to celebrate the feast, but he intentionally opposes the request to put on a show, 
right? Because they basically want to see performance out of him, right? You know, like, you're doing all these miracles, it's time for you to show yourself. Like, let's parade all your works, let's put you on a pedestal, and put on a show, right? And so, he does the exact opposite, right? He goes in secret, okay? The exact opposite of a parade, okay? So, that's just the, the general sense of how this passage starts, right? Now, John mentions the brothers of Jesus three distinct times in just these ten verses. Okay, in verse 3, his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea. Verse 5, even his brothers didn't believe in him. And in verse 10, you see it again. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast. Okay, so what's this all about? Does Jesus have brothers? Maybe, could be cousins. Can we say for certain that Jesus either did or did not have brothers? Like in the biological sense of brothers? He did not have biological He did not. Okay, that's our orthodox faith. Okay, so I want to take a moment to really clarify this because it seems in opposition to what we just read because the scriptures literally just said that he has brothers on three different accounts. Okay, and you'll see this elsewhere in different passages as well. So it's really important for us to understand what this is all about because there's a very deep implication to understanding the fact that he did not have any, any brothers. Okay, so let's look at Genesis. In, in chapter 14, you see the relationship between Abraham and Lot. Okay, it says, Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as all the women and the people. Okay, so what's the relationship between Lot and Abraham here? Brother, right? And you see it twice in this chapter. Okay, so he clearly calls Lot his brother. But was Lot technically Abraham's brother? Okay, in Genesis eleven twenty-seven, it says, This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. Okay, so Abram's siblings are Nahor and Haran. And then Haran begot Lot. So biologically speaking, what is Lot to Abraham? His nephew. And then again in Genesis 12, 5, Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. Okay, and then a little bit later in 14, verse 12, They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Okay, so even though Lot was considered his brother, technically he wasn't. Okay, so we know that this was just a term that was used for close friends or relatives. Right, so we even say that casually in our culture today. Like, what's up, bro? Like, it's casual. Like, your brother is a close friend. Or 
we even say that to people who barely know, <laughs> right? So it's a term that's used in that casual sense, but at least in this culture, it was reserved for the people close to you, okay? Now, some people say that these brothers were not like his full brothers, but they were like half-brothers, okay? And it is possible that these brothers were children of Joseph from a previous wife, okay? And one tradition actually mentions James as the brother of Jesus, who was the son of Joseph, Joseph the carpenter, okay? So this is possible, but is it possible that these were his half-brothers, that Mary had children with another man after Joseph departed? What if it was just like a lawful marriage? You know, her husband departed, and she legally lawfully marries another man and they have children would that take away from her purity would there be a problem with that well it would definitely take away her virginity okay but even if we say that she gave birth to Christ as a virgin, but then later on, she lost her virginity in a lawful way, in a pure way, like, like married men and women that lose their virginity, but it's still pure, right? Because it's in the context of love and marriage. Would that be a problem? So by the way, this is what like 99% of Christians in our Western world here believe. So I'm not like spending time on a trivial matter. This is really important for us to understand. Okay? So if Jesus had brothers, it wouldn't just undermine the role of Mary or, or her purity or take away her virginity. That's not really the issue at hand. Okay? The issue at hand is that it would diminish the role of Christ as our sole mediator. Okay? So I'll, I'll explain what you know, that really means. Okay, so it would diminish the role of Christ as our sole mediator. Okay? And I'll explain what that means. Okay? So I, I say that because this debate is not a debate about St. Mary, even though... You know, that's a part of it, but that's not the core issue at hand, okay? So, think about Jacob's ladder, okay? What did this ladder do? It connected heaven and earth perfectly, okay? So, who is this ladder? St. Mary, okay? Why? Right, by... Who traveling through this path? Christ. Okay? So it was Christ and Him alone who passed through this path. Okay? He traveled through this channel. He's the one that passed through this channel, this ladder. Okay? So only our Savior can unite heaven and earth. Only God can serve as the sole mediator between heaven and earth. Okay, and this is what St. Paul says in the first letter to Timothy. 
In chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay? So there's no debate about that. Right? But that's why no one else can be born from St. Mary. Because no one else can mediate heaven and earth. No one else can pass through this channel. Right? And this is what was prophesied in Ezekiel in chapter 44, the first couple of verses. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces toward the east, but it was shut. Right? And keep in mind who we call the eastern door. Okay? So he says that this eastern door was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. Okay? And we say that Christ passed through this eastern door, and it remained thoroughly shut as before. Right? And so, that's what it means to preserve the perpetual virginity of St. Mary. Okay, so this isn't just about preserving her purity. Because like I said, she could very well maintain that purity as a lawfully married woman that conceived again. Right? And just because she loses her virginity later doesn't mean she's any less pure. Right? So this is about the role of Christ in our salvation. Okay, so He is the only one that can unite heaven and earth. He is the only way, the only path. Okay, so we hold on to this doctrine by preserving the perpetual virginity of St. Mary. Okay, so when you see this, that his brothers tell him to go and parade his, uh, his works and the miracles and so on, we understand this as his relatives, his cousins, uh, whether they're his half-brothers from Joseph or just close friends, but in no way can we say that St. Mary herself had other children. Okay? And, and of course, if Mary had other children of her own whenever Christ is crucified on the cross, he wouldn't tell her to go under the care of St. John. Right? That would be absurd. Right? Because like the, the other brothers who are still around would be next in line to care for their mother. Except he tells John, the son of Zebedee, right, who's not the brother of Christ, there's no debate about that, but he tells him to take care of St. Mary. He says, woman, behold your son, and John, behold your mother. Okay? So that's just to put that to rest because... This is the common understanding whenever people talk about St. Mary in our society here in uh, Western Christianity. Okay, any comments or questions about that? Yeah. Uh, was this discussing any of the three councils before the, the, the perpetual virginity of Mary? Well, the, the fathers all talk about the perpetual virginity of St. Mary. So I don't know if it was like a specific topic on trial um, like the fact that she gave birth to God, you know like Nestorius said that she gave birth to a man and then he became God and that was specifically on trial. Uh, I don't know about this doctrine itself but I do know that the fathers definitely addressed it I just don't know if 
it was addressed in a certain council or not. Okay? Any other comments or questions? Okay. All right, so keep in mind the type of group this was. Okay? Were, were these brothers, whether you know, we call them relatives or friends or whatever, were they good? In the most basic sense of the word. <laughs> they were good? Well, they're like mediocre at best. <laughs> okay? So, Craig Keener says, the brothers currently constitute an example of the world because of their unbelief. Right? So, you see in verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Like, who wants a brother that doesn't believe in you? <laughs> right? So, these were a type of group that were like influencing him in a negative way, right? So you can look at it, whether they had no concern for his safety and they were just saying like, let's go. And like whatever happens, happens, even though that they knew that this was not a safe place for him, right? And that's in contrast to what happens in the 11th chapter of St. John, whenever He's going to go to care for Lazarus. And then they tell him, what do you mean you're going to go to Judea? The Jews wanted to stone you there. Right? So at least they were concerned about it. Whereas here, they don't care. <laughs> right? And then, even if it was safe, like let's say there's no risk in going. I mean, their intentions was to just flaunt their, their prize. Right? To parade Christ. So that they could put him on a pedestal and like, join him with the flattery. All right. So, in no way were their intentions good. All right. Yeah. Ah, it's possible. It's possible, but because they themselves didn't believe in him, it seems like it's coming from the wrong place. Um, whereas maybe someone who follows him and believes in him would say, okay, let's go so we could spread the gospel. Okay, so that is a possible way to look at it, but uh, I'm inclined to interpret it this way because of their own heart, because they really didn't align themselves with Christ. Okay, any other comments? Those are all good thoughts, by the way. Okay, so we'll get into a little bit more about these friends or relatives by the end of uh, the, ch- the section we just read to. Okay, all right, now I, I want to talk a little bit about this feast. Okay, so what's this feast all about? The Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Just tell me one thing. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. That's basically what it's all about. Okay. Uh, there's a, a relation to what happened during the wandering of the Jews throughout the desert. Okay. So... 
this was a very, very significant feast. Okay, and we'll explain why it was so significant. But John Bear, Father John Bear says, this next feast, the fourth to be mentioned in the Gospel of John, is that of tabernacles. The most popular feast in the temple, which was, as Josephus puts it, Josephus is a Jewish hostilian, he puts it, a, a, a most holy and most eminent feast, and so observed with special care. The Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, also known as the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of the Lord, or simply the Feast, was probably originally an agricultural feast celebrated at the time of the harvest, when the workers slept in booths, or, or like tents, but came to recall Israel's sojourn in the wilderness and God's providential care. Okay, so this feast comes from Leviticus 23. Okay, when God instructs them to observe this feast. Okay, but it, it's a product of what happened throughout those 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, so it was celebrated throughout seven days, and on the eighth day they would rest because it was the Sabbath, so those seven or eight days, to recall the experience of the Israelites as they wandered throughout the desert for those 40 years and dwelt in tents during their journey. Because they were always traveling, so they were going from place to place, and they didn't have a real permanent residence. Okay, so every place was just a temporary location. So they would build a little tent, they would stay there for a little, and then they would move on to the next place. Okay, so they celebrated this feast. It was a very joyful feast by going out to Jerusalem, and it was one of three feasts that they would actually have to travel to Jerusalem. The other two were Pentecost and Passover. Okay? And then they would dwell in tents in the city of Jerusalem for those seven days. And then they would rest on the eighth day or the Sabbath. Okay? And that would reflect their wandering in the desert in the past for those 40 years until they reached the promised land. Okay? Everybody get the general gist of what this feast is all about? Okay, we're going to dig a little bit deeper because there's a huge significance... Uh, and, and several layers to this feast. All right? So let's look at what actually happens during these seven days or, or even up until the eighth day. And then you'll see like, the depth of like, what happens in Christ throughout this passage in, in chapter 7. Okay, so for starters, the priest would go from the temple to the pool of Siloam to fill a pot of water. Okay, you know the Pool of Siloam, right? And this is mentioned whenever uh, he tells the blind man to go to wash his, his eyes and so on. Okay, so the priest would go there from the temple, fill a pot of water, and then he would enter the temple with this pot of water through the water gate. Okay? And then he would take another bowl of wine and then go to the altar with, with this bowl of wine as well. And then these bowls would have holes at the bottom of them. Okay, so then they would drip as he's at the altar, and then they would like trickle down into the temple and fill the temple with all this. Okay, so this was actually foreshadowed in the prophecy of Ezekiel. So if you go to Ezekiel 47, you'll see that what God tells Ezekiel to do is to foreshadow what will happen in this feast. So then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. 
For the front of the temple faced east, the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate that faces the east, and there was water running out on the right side. Okay? So, this has a Christological significance because Christ himself will identify as this living water. Okay? This water that flows from the temple. Okay? And we know that he himself identifies as the temple. Right? I actually just spoke about this in a sermon two days ago. Right? As the shrine or the cornerstone. But we know that he's the temple. He says that destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And we know that he spoke about his body. And you know that reference is made throughout the scriptures several times. Okay, so from this temple flows this water that the priest brings from the pool of Siloam. Which by the way means sent. Right? And who is the one who is sent? Christ. Right? The Son of God is sent by the Father to come into the world for our salvation. Okay, so this water brought back from this pool and drips from the altar and flows into the temple for the people to drink. Okay, and you, if you take a little sneak peek a little bit later in this chapter, in verse 37 and 38, it says that, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he himself identifies as the source of living water. Okay? So, for starters, we we know that this feast was celebrated at a certain time. It was celebrated on the seventh month of the year and on the 15th day. Okay? So, think about those seven days, right? And then finally, whenever the celebration ends, then on, on the last day of this feast, which is the eighth day, Christ speaks and identifies Himself as the living water. So right after the celebration concludes and, and th- this water that uh, is like dripping from the altar into the temple finally comes to an end, He Himself stands and says, I am this living water. Okay, so all of this is to foreshadow what is fulfilled in Him. Okay? And so, you see that this is what the people experienced in the wilderness as well. Okay? Because this whole feast is to celebrate God's providential care during those 40 years in the wilderness. What followed them and gave them water throughout their wandering in the desert? Well, you guys know this. What did Moses strike? Give them water. The rock. Okay? What's the big deal with this rock? Is it just some random rock? Like any disposable rock? He can go to any rock and just strike it? Or is it like one specific rock that like actually followed them? That's what I'm asking. Go to 1 Corinthians 10.4. 1 Corinthians 10.4. Tell me what that says. 
Quickly, 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 we have a lot to cover. Whoever has it, loud and clear, go. One more time. All right, so pretty clear. St. Paul recognized what was going on throughout those 40 years. This rock is Christ, right? Out of this rock flowed water to quench their thirst. And it was a rock that followed them, just as God always follows His people, right? To be with His people. Where you go, I'll go. I'm going to be right by your side. Okay? And so this is fulfilled in Christ. You see here in the feast, as the priest goes, gets this bowl with the holes in the bottom of the bowl filled with water to the altar and it's dripping. And then right after the seven days of celebrating all of this, Christ stands on the eighth day and says, guys, that's me. Okay? You get it? And by the way, who had access to this water? Everyone, right? They all drank the same spiritual drink. Okay? That's why this bowl filled with water would drip and sprinkle all this water throughout the whole temple so everyone can have access to it. Okay? So we'll get into a little bit more about that a little bit later too, okay? Uh, Another quality about this feast... This is what Father John Bear says. They also had four great golden golden candlesticks with four golden bowls on top of them and four ladders to each of them with wicks made of the worn out drawers and girdles of the priests. Okay? So there are these four great golden candlesticks, four golden bowls, and four ladders. All right, so... This correlates with the water as well. This light is in conjunction with the water. The the light that is on the four great golden candlesticks. Okay? And that's to foreshadow how the Messiah would be a light for the whole world. Okay? This number four should automatically indicate the four directions of our whole world. Okay, anytime you see four, you think universal. You think north, south, east, west. Okay? And so, this is to say that Christ will be a light to everyone, both Jews and Gentiles. Okay? And this is prophesied in Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah 49, 6, indeed, he says, this is God speaking, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Okay, who is the servant that God will give us as a light? Right? Who is this first servant that God will give as a light to the Gentiles? Take a wild guess. Just entertain me. Who's God speaking to? 
Who will God give us as our salvation to be a light to the Gentiles? Christ, Jesus. Okay, you guys are sleeping. <laughs> so Christ is that light. And during this feast, right, they celebrate these four great golden candlesticks. Okay? And what happened throughout their wandering in the desert? What followed them during the night? The pillar of light. Okay? So this pillar of light was to foreshadow the light of Christ. So they did this during those seven days. Right? And so this is what Father John Bear says as well. In addition to the festival light celebrated in the feast, as we have seen above, the image of light also, of course, alludes back to the pillar of fire and a cloud that accompanied Israel in the wilderness and the glory of God that filled the tabernacle and the temple. Okay, so this light or this glory is assumed in Christ. Right? And you'll see this in the very next chapter when, when Christ reveals Himself as the light of the world. Okay, I'm jumping around a little bit, but this specific feast sets the stage for what's going to happen in the next couple of chapters because they're not stretched out into like four or five months. Okay? These events are, are happening within the next few days in chapter 7, 8, and 9. Okay? So you have to really consider the significance of all of this stuff that we're going to read in the next couple of chapters in the context of this feast in Jerusalem. Okay, and what typically happened during this feast. Okay, so this light and this water is given to the whole world. Okay, four great golden candlesticks and four golden bowls on top of them and four ladders of each of them. So you see this four to all directions of the earth. Okay, and so during this time too, they would also pray, Save now, we beseech you, O Lord. Okay. And they would wave branches in all four directions. Okay, they would have branches of palms and, and different types of branches that they would wave during these prayers. And they would wave them again in these four different directions. Okay, and that would symbolize the presence of God in every single direction. Okay, the presence of God throughout the whole world. Okay, so as to say that God is not confined to this physical temple. And again, that's fulfilled in Christ, right? Because He Himself is God in the flesh. Okay, so God is not reduced to a specific location, but He's accessible to all of us. And that's why, right after He says that I will give you this water, what does He speak about? And if you go back up to verse 37 and 38... What is this water that He's going to give us? It's the Holy Spirit, right? Who will abide in us and will dwell in us wherever we go, right? So you see that there's this universal aspect to the feast and this sense of God's presence in an unlimited way, all right? So this feast was about God's deliverance for all of humanity. 
Okay, and this is what he accomplished in Christ. Okay, this was for Jews and Gentiles. It was for all of the nations. And Zechariah even prophesied that the time will come when this feast is even celebrated by the enemies of the Jews. Okay, so you go to Zechariah 14, 16 to 18. And it says, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of Lords, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. And if the family of Egypt do not go up to present themselves, then upon them shall come the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Okay, so they were instructed to keep this feast. All right? And this applies to everyone. Okay, but this, this was in a prophetic sense that will, will come to pass in, in the final days. Okay? And St. Cyril identifies this feast as a type of salvation in Christ. And all the fathers looked at it this way. Okay? And I identified as the salvation that God accomplishes in Christ as He unites all of the saints in Himself. Okay? So that all the saints come to dwell together in the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, and that's why all of the Jews would come in one place to celebrate this feast in the physical location of Jerusalem. But in Christ, all of the saints are united in the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay? So one final component about this feast, and you'll see how this also relates to Christ in a very profound way. So, Father John Baer says, a third component of the feast was carried out at daybreak when the priests standing at the upper gate would blow the shofar, a ram's horn, three times, then descend to the tenth step, where again they blow the shofar three times, and then three times again upon reaching the court of women. Okay? So after that, they would face the west, okay? their backs would be towards the sun, and they would be facing the front of the temple. Okay, and they would make this prayer. Okay, pay attention to this. They would say, Our fathers, when they were in this place, turned with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they worshipped the sun towards the east. But as for us, our eyes are toward the Lord. Okay? And so, just as in the Old Covenant, the temple faced the west, right now in the New Covenant, we're brought from the west to the east, from death to life. The sun sets in the west, whereas now we face the direction of the sunrise, the direction of new life, the start of a new day, right? It it brings our mind to the theme of the resurrection, okay? And we don't pray towards a physical building or even in orienting ourselves to this direction. It's not in a literal sense, Okay, like, like if I don't know where the east is, and I just face in this direction, if it happens to be north or west, it doesn't matter, right? But my mindset is that I am facing God in a spirit of hope, in the spirit of the resurrection, in the spirit of new life, okay? I always remember His promises, okay? I remember that He took me from death to life, 
right? He brought me from the left to the right, from weakness to strength. Okay, so that's our mindset in prayer. Okay, and, and that's the theme of this whole feast. It's about how God took care of them, brought them from bondage to freedom, brought them from slavery to the promised land, and passed through the Red Sea to give them this promise. Okay, and they would celebrate this. This was a very joyful feast. Okay, and so you see all of that is comprised in Christ himself. All right? So every rabbi would like, identify with the authority of Moses. Like they're in the temple, and they would r- relate to Moses as their authority and as their validation for speaking. Whereas Christ comes and he says, like, I'm speaking on the authority of the Father, Right? Now, let's look at this in a more practical sense because I know there was a lot of theology and symbolism and stuff like that. Okay, let's look at this in a very simple way. Practically speaking, what does this feast teach us? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very important lesson. As simple as that is, like that's one of the most important lessons that we can walk through life with. right? To remember that God's going to always take care of us. Okay? God will always take care of us. In, in a nutshell, like, I, I think that, personally speaking, it teaches me that like, you've got to remember where you came from. Okay, and this was such an important concept that they dedicated a seven or eight day feast strictly to celebrate this. Right? And you would have to go from your house all the way to Jerusalem. It was a big deal. Strictly to remember where you came from. Okay, remember where you came from, that you went through the desert in these 40 years, and this happened, and that happened, and this happened, and that happened, then what comes to mind? Okay, wow, like, God is omnipotent. God is great. God is powerful. Like, there's nothing beyond His ability. Okay, He took us from bondage to freedom. Look at how miraculous God worked with His people, and taking us through the Red Sea, and how even our sandal straps were not worn out as we passed through the wilderness. Okay? It tells them about God's provisions. Okay, so that nothing is impossible for God. And you have to remember that. Remember, a little bit later, whenever they cross the Jordan River, what does God tell the people to do? Well, He tells Joshua to tell the people. What's every tribe supposed to do as they're crossing through the Jordan River? Come on, work with me, please. Yes, good. You just got to take a stab in the dark, you know. You miss every shot you don't take. Just remember that. (laughs) All right, so he said, take a rock from the bottom of the river. Why? Because, well... That's an impossible thing to do. It's not like they had people scuba diving, right? So for you to take a rock from the bottom of the river means 
you walked on dry land where this body of water would be. So something impossible happened. This rock serves as a memory of how the impossible became possible. Right? Each tribe would keep this with them. And then the people would always talk about the story of God's wonders and His power. Right? And the children would ask, what's so special about this rock? Oh, let me tell you how we walked on dry land through the, the river Jordan. Okay? I think another lesson, when, when you think about remembering where you came from, then you have to remember your poverty. Remember to stay humble. Remember, like, now you pass through the Red Sea, and you walk through the wilderness for those 40 years, and you entered into the Promised Land, and things are better, but you didn't do this yourself, right? Remember that it's God who accomplishes the impossible, right? Don't think highly of yourself. Don't think that it was by your own effort or your own strength that you made it happen, okay? So, we were lost without God. Okay, whenever you go to the Jerusalem and you're dwelling in tents for those seven days, you remember that like, wow, I'm nothing without God. I wouldn't be here had God not, you know, liberated me from Egypt and passed through the Red Sea and took care of me in the wilderness. Okay, so it keeps you humble. All right? And then finally, I think that just reminds you of your condition here on earth. Right? You're dwelling in a tent. It's not a permanent residence. What does that tell you? That we're sojourners in this place. And that's what we pray in the liturgy. And, and the scriptures tell us that our citizenship is in where? Come on, that's a little softball pitch. In heaven, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. Right? We're just passing through this place for the 70, 80, 100 years that we live here. Okay, our final destination is in heaven. So don't get too comfortable here. You're created for eternal life with God. And yes, you could start to experience that here and now. Right? But our citizenship is in heaven. We're passing through this life as sojourners. We're not going to take anything with us to heaven. As Job said, Naked I came into this world, and naked I will leave this world. Okay? Any comments or questions about that? Okay, I think we can just cover the very next verse. And then uh, we'll stop there. Alright, so in the next verse, verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Or your time is always ready. Right? So, what does that mean? My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. And why is it that his time has not yet come? What time? Or that it has not yet come for what? What are you talking about? Okay, so his time always relates to his passion. Okay, 
to accomplish salvation through his crucifixion. Okay? And this is a little bit more obvious in other places when he says, my hour has not yet come, and he's speaking to them of his crucifixion. Okay? And we said this before. Okay? So it shouldn't be a surprise to you. Okay? But he's talking to them about his time when he will ascend the cross and that the Father would glorify him through his passion. Right? So the cross is not just about the pain and suffering of Christ. That's why in the prayer of Gethsemane, and we'll get into this in chapter 17 probably in like six years from now, but we're going to say that, Father, now glorify your Son. Okay, what is he talking about? When he's crucified, that he will ascend the cross in glory. Because the glory of God is that sacrificial love. Alright? And so, he says, this time has not yet come when I will, when I will receive this glory. Okay? And so, your time is always ready. Your time of getting glory, flattery, praise, is always ready. It's always here. Okay? And it's because they always sought the glory of men. They always sought the praise of men. So it's always available for them. Because they walked with the world and the world is just praising them. Okay? And so there's this sense in which the time that Christ is alluding to transcends this chronological sense of time. And in Greek there's actually two different words for time. Okay, there's chronos and there's kairos. The English language doesn't distinguish between the two. But in Greek, there are two different words for time. Okay, so what does chronos sound like? What English word? Chronological, right? So it's the sense of time progressing in a sequence, right? In chronological order. Whereas kairos is more of this divine sense of time, right? It's actually more accurately translated as the appointed time, right? the time that God sees fit. Okay? And so his time in relation to the, the crucifixion will happen when God appoints it. Right? So he's saying, it's not been appointed to me now. I'm following the will of the Father. Right? I'm in submission to His will. I'm in submission to His timing. I'm in submission to His plan. So now is not the appointed time to go out to Judea and to argue with the Jews and to get crucified. And like It's not time for that. Okay? And without even explaining why, we know why because He still has much more to do in His ministry. Right? But whether we really understand it or not, the bottom line is, it's not God's time. So Christ says, my time has not yet come. The appointed time that the Father has given me is not now. So I'm going to wait. Because it's not just me doing my own thing whenever I want, however I want. Right? So what does it mean for him to say, your time is always ready? It means you're always doing whatever you want and doing it your own way. So you're living autonomously. You're living selfishly. Okay, so you're making your own time. That is the exact opposite of the Christian path. 
to do whatever you want, whenever you want. Okay? The mind of Christ is to do whatever God wants, whenever He wants. Yes? Well, in Christ, there is, there is this economy of divine salvation, okay, that he is planning to spread the gospel. He's planning to do this work here or there and so on, right? And he has this in mind already, right? If you apply this to our own life, it's not like God has our lives fixed, like, uh, like he has the world on strings like a puppeteer moving us around like little puppets, right? And so he's giving us the freedom so long as we are in submission to his will and, and he gives us the freedom to spread our wings and so long as we are walking in his love and his truth, then we are in line with his will, right? So it's not like God wants to dictate our life, but he wants to guide us to do what is best for us according to the right time and the right way the right place and so on that answer your question okay so just a comment about how his brothers wanted to basically just live in their own way St. Cyril of Alexandria says whoever enjoys fellowship with the Lord Christ must behave appropriately and prudently He must know that every work has its particular time or the fullness of time. But those who behave recklessly and without constraint live as they like and anything suits them without obligation. The time had not yet come for preaching without limit or for open and public announcement because the Jewish mind was not yet ready to understand. Okay, so I'll just leave you with this question. Whether we really apply this mindset. Okay, do we trust in God's timing and just submit to it? Okay, do we really follow in the footsteps of Christ and allow His will to rule our life? And it's not rocket science. You know, if it doesn't seem obvious to do this now or later, you know, God is not going to scrutinize us for that. But, you know, God gives us clear indications like now it's time to pray. Now it's time to read. Now it's time to serve. Now uh, it's time to relax. Okay, there's a a little bit of wiggle room in all of this stuff, but for the most part, we can't go throughout our whole day and say, well, uh, there was really no time to pray or read or serve or call and check up on someone. You know, that's not how we should live our life. Okay, and so... I want you to just walk away with this question whether we are sensitive to God's will and we actively pursue His will in the timing of our daily activities. Okay? Are there any comments or questions there? Yes, yes. Well, God may be guiding us to do a certain activity with more urgency too. When, when I say 
we should be attentive to God's timing doesn't mean we have to sit around passively. You know what I mean? We can be active in whatever God is guiding us to do. And a lot of times, God's will is for us to be urgent. God tells us to do this, we should jump right on it. Right? Like Abraham sacrificing Isaac. He wakes up early in the morning and goes up to the mountain, like wastes no time. Okay? That makes sense? Any other comments or questions? All right. Let's stand to pray.